folks, welcome back. This is Andy with the Poor Proles Almanac. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, and wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you can find us on Patreon if you're enjoying what we're doing here and you would like to help us cover the cost of hosting the podcast. We don't explicitly offer any of our traditional content focused on the specific goals of the podcast to our Patreons in terms of limited access or anything like that for now. Knowledge is for everyone, but we have started up a Patreon-only miniseries called The Prologues, during which we will do some critiques on various ecological subject matters. We've also included clips of this entire series up on the Patreon as well, so if you want to hear stuff from all of the episodes, go check it out. We've also released one episode that was asked by popular demand for public consumption, so that's a good place to check it out and see if you'd like to hear more. On top of this content, we've got stickers available and we're including some footage from my farm putting the theory we've talked about into practice. So if you want to see what's going on over there, check out the Patreon. We're also on Instagram and Facebook if you'd like to follow us over there. In this episode, we're talking with Margaret Killjoy, the host of Live Like the World is Dying, author, musician, and activist. We chat about prepping, what we're prepping for, and how we should be thinking about what prepping means in the sense of immediate, short-term, and long-term needs, and how that affects what we expect to rebuild from collapse, and also the factors of collapse go into how you should contemplate prepping. Absolutely. We talk a bit about how politics and the ecology, climate change, things like that are impacting what we're preparing for and a bit about what it means to build communities of resilience and the nuance that goes into that and sometimes how we have to rethink what it means to build relationships within our communities. And I think it's a really great conversation because she brings up some really great points that I don't think get talked about very often in the prepper, especially the right-wing prepper space, but even in the left, there there's some blind spots that she brings up that I think are, are worth talking about. So hopefully you guys enjoy this episode. I'm sure we'll have her on again. Uh, So Margaret, thank you so much for taking some time to chat with us. It's kind of funny that when we had started with this podcast, one of the big drivers was the fact that we didn't really seem to see any prepper podcasts that were not right wing. And then I found your project Live Like the World is Dying, which I enjoy. So it's interesting that we've kind of both taken a different direction in the prepping sphere or whatever you want to call it, collapse sphere. How about you introduce yourself? Sure. Uh, my name is Margaret Kiljoy. I use uh, she or they pronouns. And yeah, I guess I'm I'm the host of a podcast called Live Like the World is Dying, which is uh, your podcast for what feels like the end times. Um, and it's it came out of a uh, an article that I wrote called Live Like the World is Ending. And then just someone recommended the better pun of Live Like the World is Dying. And I'm internally grateful for that person. It came out of my like realization. This is and it was actually immediately before COVID. This, what does it mean for our own like mental health and our own preparation to be living in a, a situation in which things might collapse? They might not collapse. Like that tension, you know. And and what does it mean to not put all your eggs into the collapse basket, but not keep all your eggs into the, you know, things will continue happily ever after. I mean, it's not happy the way it is now either, right? And so that's the other thing. It's like. Yeah. So I guess I, I started that podcast as kind of kind of originally just to explore all the different aspects of that. And then COVID hit and then it just became much more of a like, okay, this is going to be a, 
a preparation podcast even more explicitly. Um, but that's great. I'm I'm really excited for more for us to like find each other, all of these different uh, people, because it's the the leftist prepping space exists. It's just not um, well advertised. Right. It doesn't yeah. seem like it's as you have to I know put it. It's not. Yeah, it's yeah. not in the forefront like prepping is on the right, where you know you talk to somebody for five minutes and they tell you how everything's going to hell in a handbasket and they have a solution for it in their bunker somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> One of the great things about having you on the podcast is that I don't have to tiptoe around the very real concern about the fall of capitalism and ecological destruction, which is something I we kind of have to do a lot with um, various ecologists and things like that that we talk to. So I do really want to kind of dig in on that a little bit. Since, you know, Biden has taken office and things haven't changed in a lot of ways, I'm curious as to what you think uh, we should be gearing up for in 2022 and 2024, as the GOP has been kind of rethinking and refocusing its energies in the world post-Trump, where Trump might not be the figurehead, but the, the mentality hasn't gone away. I'm always nervous to predict things because if there's one thing I've learned with about 20 years of activism or whatever is that I'm, I'm always wrong, but so is everyone else. Mm -hmm. Like, I think I might be right at around the same rate as everyone else, even though I'm like, but I have all of this, like, you know, the study where I pay attention to like, this is true in the like micro, like um, there's some stuff I think I'm good at. I think if I'm in the streets, I can usually tell what the cops are about to do at a demonstration, (laughs) Sure, you know, um, but I'm also wrong about what that means tactically very often because I'll be like, oh, they're about to charge. We should leave. And then people are like, we don't want to leave. And then they stay and then the police charge and then we win. And I'm like, oh, yeah, it's good that you didn't listen to me. Um, you know, and so so in a lot of ways, I'm always nervous to say, you know, this is certainly this is what we should do. But I I do think that um, these this we have this kind of like it's funny because we do when we don't have this like break in the storm we don't have this break in the storm like this last week has just been this like non-stop barrage of police assassination you know but there's this there's a lowered sense of crisis now that biden is in charge and in some ways the the specific types of escalation that were happening under trump are no longer the case um you know there's the person in charge of dealing with COVID believes in COVID. So that's, that's a bonus. Um, you know, I, but I, okay. So, but in terms of how the GOP is handling it and the GOP's move towards being like an explicitly fascist organization or like, you know, huge chunks of it or whatever, people come at me about it, whatever, like yeah, nuance, know, like <laughs> huge, yeah, like huge chunks of the far right are increasingly far right. And it's much larger than it was before. Right. Um, but it uh, it's no longer the thing in power. And that's like both good and bad. It's like overall very good, I think. I think overall the far right is not really going to gain ground at the same pace that they gained ground under Trump. They will continue to gain ground. Um, but I think that, okay, well, I, I think this is true on the left, for example. I think that when things move from out in the open to clandestine, uh, that's usually because things are going badly and things are about to to wind down like a political movement that has a lot of power in the streets if it suddenly becomes a political movement that only like runs out at night and sets things on fire i'm not opposed to people for good reason going out and doing whatever they feel drawn to do um but clandestinity is often the like 
and it's often where social movements go to never come back. Um, and it's it's not that the motion to clandestinity is bad as much as it is a sign of this kind of thing. Um, personally, I think I think movements are incredibly successful when they're both, and um, and when those two parts don't hate each other. And so, if the far right continues to have it's above ground people support it's underground people. That's a really bad sign. But the way that the they fucking just turned on each other after the sixth in DC, that kind of gave me some hope because it was like, they're just a, they don't know what they're doing. They're not building a revolution, which unfortunately though, if they go clandestine, it means more directed violence, you know? And I do worry about like, with that idea that they've, they're licking their wounds and, um, Mm-hmm. Much like I think a lot of people on the left, you get battle hardened and you have the only way to get battle hardened is to be in battle. And now they have in some like, you know, I think we laugh too much about it. But in reality, they're going to learn from that experience, whether or not they come out stronger or not. It's another story. But the key figureheads that are involved in those in that movement have learned a lot from that experience. Yeah, I think that's probably true. Conversely, and I, I almost don't want to waste any breath talking about it, but I think it's almost equally dangerous to ignore the DNC and their ability to co-opt leftist language. And even as I know, we're going to probably be releasing this in a month or two, but like, you know, the how quickly AOC has spun from being a progressive to may as well just be Joe Biden. You know, we think about the dynamics of how American politics plays, and we are very, uh, insular in the fact that it's a a very narrow window that people understand politics in this country. Whoever is in power tends to not be able to support it, get its base to be support, uh, to support them. And the DNC is doing everything in its power to kind of continue that tradition. And, you know, we're talking from our perspective, at least we're talking about this idea of climate change and kind of how how do how does that weird dynamics kind of play into the DNC's inability to deal with any real climate change issues and how that exacerbates fascism and all these other components? Yeah, no, that's that's God. It's like I I wish I could I wish I could just ignore party politics, you know, um, because I I don't believe that the solutions lie in party politics, but you can't ignore, you It'd know, the nice, same way that you can but... like. It would be nice yeah, to simplify you, you can't it, right? Ignore the storm, right? Yeah, but you can't ignore the storm that's coming when there's a storm coming, you know. And so you have to pay attention to the weather in order to survive. So, yeah, I guess we have to pay attention to this stuff. And and for me, I mean, the depressing thing is watching. Well, it's like the the Democrats are sort of splitting. I mean, obviously they kind of didn't. They instead retreated to their base of central centrist neoliberalism. Uh, but there was a, an interesting moment where they were considering becoming progressive or even leftist, um, or some elements of it are, but they're not bringing the progressives and the leftists back into the democratic fold. So they're just going to lose power as compared to like what happened with Trump is that everyone stuck with him. You know, I mean, it was the most depressing. I mean, like I'm, I'm cynical as shit. I'm especially cynical of fucking Republicans, but like, watching everyone just be like well i mean he's a fascist but he's our fascist you know like that was just and oh my god watching the libertarians give up libertarianism was really eye-opening confounding me, you know? and, <laughs> yeah. yeah and it actually it kind of it, it warms my heart i have a soft spot for um 
actual libertarians who like actually looked at this and were like, wow, everyone's going fascist and I don't want to do that. Um, you know, and just like have really different views on property than I do, but like <laughs> at least like agree that authoritarianism is a nightmare. Right. Got to start somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. So like, I, you know, you brought up that point that um, it would be nice to ignore all this stuff and be like, it doesn't matter. But especially when we're talking about things like prepping, it, it does matter. It, it matters whether or not that insurrection had been successful and how people, especially marginalized people, prepare for what's coming. With all of the things going on and the fact that I think it's pretty evident that Biden is not going to win a 2024 election. And I know that seems <laughs> super like way in advance, but like we just we should be already preparing for the fact that there's going to be somebody that's probably more articulate than Trump with the same views as president in three years. How does that really impact, you know, how you think about prepping and kind of what what your end goals are over the next few years in both the podcast and, you know, in terms of your activism? Yeah. What are you prepping for? <laughs> what am I prepping for? It's so hard because it's like on some level, I'm like prepping for everything, but I don't believe in like the bunker mentality. I don't believe in the I mean, it's ironic, like people in some ways look at me as like this. um well, paragon of being a prepper or whatever, partly because I just run a podcast, but also because I'm like recording this from a house I built in the woods um, that's on solar power. And, you know, I'm like one eye is like looking over there to be like, okay, the sun's gone down enough. I might have to unplug my computers, you know, whatever. Um, <laughs> Do you have proximity and, sensors? <laughs> like if somebody shows up, is there a little red light bulb that goes off in your room? No, because I, I, you know, my, I'm not good enough with Arduinos yet. There are, however, um, you thought about emotion. it. Though. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Only th I want to do it as like some weird musical installation where like deep bass thrums will start playing out of my house. My whole, my whole defense from like the average person is that I live in a black triangle in the forest and it should just be scary. You should just be like, wait, why am I walking towards the witch's house? Um, but no, I just have motion lights uh, set up. <laughs> like on the front and the back of my house and maybe somewhere else in the woods that I, I don't want to reveal too much about. <laughs> um, and, but I, but you know, it's like when people talk about prepping, I'm like, no, if something really bad goes on, I'm going to a major city, like depending on what goes wrong, right. When COVID went wrong, it was like the one crisis where hole up by yourself is a reasonable solution. Uh, but, but most crises getting together with other people and not allowing fascists to take over is going to be far more important than like, as an individual, I have six months worth of food or whatever stockpiled. Um, you know, and theoretically, I mean, I don't even like stockpile food for myself. I stockpile food for like a decent chunk of my like nearby community. And if that means I only have three days of food, then I only have three days of food, but Hey, 30 of us have three days of food or whatever, you know? Um, and because being in community with other people is always going to be, even from a selfish point of view, the better bet. So I'm prepping, you know, I'm kind of just trying to advocate general preparedness for like, you know, it's like, it's less that I think that like everything's about to collapse and more like, I want everyone to have air filters in their house, especially if you live out West where like, you know, the forest fires are just going to keep happening. And I want them to have air filters in their house, not when they already need them, you know? Um, and so I'm trying to advocate a, a pretty flexible understanding of it. But if fascists take over, then, uh, well, it's like kind of all bets are off on some level, you know? Um, how do we handle that? This, uh, 
That's a million dollar question. Yeah, it's a very dark question. question. Yeah. And most of the answers can't really directly be legally proposed. (laughs) Um, No. Except in, and and in some ways, I think that's one of the reasons we talk about collapse scenarios is so that we can talk about things when we can say like the conceptions of legitimacy of different actions look very different, which isn't to say that I'm like, hooray, this isn't like me code saying like everyone should like arm up and go. Right. And and, and again, we we struggle with it too on this podcast, trying not to fetishize Mm -hmm. collapse. Like we're not, Mm -hmm. you know, we're not, we're not like gearing up ready to go like for it we're just trying to have the conversation so that you can be mindful of the things what is really considered a necessity in a situation like that versus what is just you know convenient and and peace of mind understanding the difference between those things and in a dire dire scenario is pretty important and that's something that you have to think about and i think that's what prepping sort of leads us in that direction i like that i like that way of framing it this idea of prepping is by, I don't want to say by nature, individualistic, but I think by our culture is individualistic. So you'd mentioned that you prep for your community. And I want to know, how does that happen in terms of how do you, how do you get community buy-in for something like that? Or is that just a, a resource that you have, should it be needed Uh, And you would have to do that outreach to be like, hey, I've got bread or whatever. It's it's hard to get by. And I even literally live on like a farm, like an off grid land project. And I don't have 100 percent buy in with everyone I live with, you know, Um, because everyone is just going to handle. It's not that people don't believe that crisis is possible, but people are going to handle that emotionally very differently. And it's possible that the like the prepping method is, is not necessarily always the healthy one. So since I don't have immediate buy-in, I do have buy-in sometimes from some people, like, for example, like um, when COVID hit, just being able to be like, Hey, I've got some masks, you know, I, I got them because I was like, Oh, if an earthquake hits, you want P100 masks. Right. And I was like, well, I, I have, you know, an extra 20 of these or whatever, because they're disposable and you couldn't get masks at that time. And so I was able to go to uh, like um, a nurse practitioner friend who didn't have adequate PPE through work during the very beginning of the crisis. And they had, you know, and, and just being able to be like, well, here I have, I have this stuff. Right. And it didn't cost me very much at the time. And, and then also this kind of um, there's this attitude that I really like about prepping, which is being able to say like, as we have to set up mutual aid networks to take care of ourselves at the very least, like I already have mine. So it's like when we all have to figure out, like, so it's not, a, I got mine, fuck you. It's a, I got mine. So please don't focus on saving me, but maybe the next person down the street does need the stuff. Right. And so I won't need to line up at the mutual aid center in order to, to get food. I might, line up there to to give away some of my food you know and then also you know it's the great thing about running a podcast is that it's like well not everyone is going to do this but there are a lot of people who are and and actually my podcast resonate with far more people than i expected it to um it it really caught me by surprise and there's a lot of people who are in this space right it tells you a lot about how people are feeling when when you a podcast like that resonates with that many people. And I think yeah. you touched on, I think you touched on um, 
a main point that I think people don't realize in crisis times, but it's the same thing if you've ever been on a plane and they go through the whole rigmarole of telling you about when the oxygen mask comes down and you put your heads between your legs to kiss your ass goodbye because the plane's plumbing (laughs) out of the sky. They tell you to put your mask on first and then assist others. And it's that simple step that basically says, you know, help yourself before you can help others. And that's pretty much what we try to accomplish with with prepping is take care of ourselves so that we have the ability to help others when the time comes because we're clearly in a crisis if we have to use, you know, our our stockpile, whatever we have stocked up, things are dying. Yeah. The thing about communities that I, that concerns me um, on the left is that, you know, if you, if you spend a lot of time on the internet, which I try not to, but I think <laughs> it's, it's a, it's COVID and like, what else are you going to do? Uh, I can only hang out with my sheep for so long is that there, there's so much, there's so many people that are eager to, you know, I don't want to talk like say cancel culture, but like this idea of like, we, we have a very hyper-focused understanding of what people should mm-hmm. and can be doing. And that that mentality, I think, is really incompatible with building dynamic, resilient systems within community and collapse. People are not always going to... There's nobody on my street, I can guarantee you, that's left-wing. There's no other anarchist possibly in my part of town. That doesn't mean I don't want to work with them. And some of them may not be very good people. But how do we how do we make these two worlds compatible where we can demand those high levels of respect, but also work with people that we otherwise would probably cancel? I mean, it's interesting because it's like, there's some level that's just like, well, we need to get the fuck over ourselves. Yep. And like, be like, okay, me and this other person, I see eye to eye about uh, some, and sometimes it's like really oddly specific shit. But then there's other people where I'm like, you know, if someone's like, if someone reads me as a man, that's not inherently a problem, right? Um, you know, I'm I'm a non-passing trans woman. Like, it's pretty much just a matter of how I present in terms of my clothing and makeup that make people make gender determinations around me, right? But if I'm with someone who just like adamantly hates the fact that I'm a trans woman, uh, I just can't fuck with them. Right. And if I'm like hanging out with someone who's just like, adamantly racist we're not going anywhere um but most people aren't like that in my experience even the people who are shitty to me as a trans woman uh, i'm I'm focusing on my own experience as as a trans woman is to um but i i expect that people at different intersections will will have different issues with this um but it's like there's on the other hand there's a lot of people who don't understand it and don't get it i can get the fuck over it and can like be like all right fine she and like sort of not understand and if we're like the flood is like rising and we're hanging out on a roof together like maybe we don't shoot each other over it you know like maybe we figure out how to like work around that problem um and i think on some level like when shit goes wild you just like get the fuck over some of it you know um or at least i hope we do um yeah no i don't know it's it's hard yeah the the like and i think that the like intensity by which we can be critical of each other um i think it's like a understandable trauma response for the large for a large part of like where you're like well i can't control this larger thing you know i can't stop 
the people who are like fighting against trans people's existence, but I can like get mad at this person who says, Hey guys. Right. Um, and you know, it's like some people are bothered by Hey guys. And some people aren't, I'm literally about half the time someone says like, Hey man, I take it as they're implying I'm a man. And then the other half of the time I'm like, that's just the way that they speak, you know? Um, so I, I don't know. I, I hope we get the fuck over it soon, but I also like have a lot of sympathy. Right. And I think that touches on uh, what we had mentioned earlier, where in a dire situation, you really find out what is a necessity and what just makes you comfortable. And all of those things we're talking about are just things that make people comfortable and they have no bearing on surviving uh, a critical situation. So it goes by the wayside. Yeah. I, right. You know, you look at a lot of things, you know, the, again, the Internet culture around leftism and, um, you know, it, it's hard to really imagine that that uh, multitude of anger focused in a way that can make any meaningful change when we're at a point, I think, probably in the next 25 years where the left either needs to make a real legitimate stand or like we are in a very bad place. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm always, you know, worried about those two clashing focuses of things like identity politics and being able to survive as a species on the planet. Well, uh, yeah. I mean, I totally worry about those issues being brought up in a bipartisan system where everything is uh, zero or one, a yes or a no, or it's just driven into this ultimatum of, you know, a shit sandwich or a shiny turd shit sandwich. Like, which which one do you want? And that's 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 the one thing that scares me the most is having these things boiled down to damned if you do damned if you don't because that's not how these problems should be dealt with they should be dealt from you know we're trying to do this from a human standpoint to to include and involve everybody and bipartisan just doesn't allow that so that's why the that's why we see the system yeah, is going to collapse i don't yeah. know if it's going to collapse mean, do, so much as fall short but yeah. it's not serving everybody yeah how do the workers uh of the world work together if uh you know, we, we can't even like have a conversation. Mm -hmm. I think we're being like divided in this very conscious way. I mean, not like in a, like, there's like a single overlord who controls both parties kind of way. Um, but I think systems are far more, I, I, I'm not really a conspiracy theorist at the end of it. Um, but this like divide about like everything is either right wing or left wing and not even right wing or left wing, right wing or centrist, you know, like Republican or Democrat. Um, people didn't give a shit that I was trans before Trump, you right. know? Like people were just like, ah, oh, I was doing a dress, mind your business, you know? And now it's like, I'm the fucking center of a culture war. I have no interest in being the center of like, everyone's got a goddamn opinion about me. And like, and sometimes annoying way where like the Democrats are like, you know, like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. I like, you know, whatever. And like, I mean, that's better than the people who I think might try to murder me, but it's like, no one was trying to murder me. I mean, again, trans people, especially people, uh, trans women of color, murdered um because of patriarchal violence and racist violence on a really regular basis but um but there's still it was less suffused out into culture of like i hate that trans women exist until more recently and this this division i really actively worry about it um breaking our natural response during crisis to take care of each other because yeah there's there's people who um are really committed to hating me you know and 
So I can't unite with them under those circumstances. Um, and it's bad. Now that you've said that, to go back to the question I asked before about like 2024, do you think those types of relationships with people in the community, um, those mentalities are going to continue to grow despite the fact that Biden's president and how that impacts, again, how you're prepping and things like that? That's an interesting question because I, I feel like Trump more than anything like polarized American politics. Like it actually just sent a ton of people to the left and a ton of people to the right. And there just like wasn't really that many people left fence sitting. Um, but some of those people who are left fence sitting are Biden and like want to bring everyone back onto the fence. And I don't, I mean, the fence sitting is, has a lot of negative connotations because like there's some shit that just needs fighting, right? Like climate change needs fighting, racism needs fighting, the police need abolition, you know? But on some level, the like, the sense that we can at least see each other and like the sense that we can like have any kind of common ground, you know, though that said, okay, like I live in a rural area and I live in a, um, a con conservative area around a non-conservative town in a con it's like I live outside of a blue bubble within a red area, you know? Um, and it's, yeah. Okay. And it's still not like, like I, there's a lot more people who like actively want to like fuck me up because of who I am, but that percentage is still like not higher than one in 10 or maybe one in eight, you know, like overall, like, you know, some of our neighbors who believe some dumb wacky shit, like can have sense talked into them and have had sense talked into them, you know? Um, so it sounds like you, it sounds like you have some hope. It sounds like people, you know, you understand that situations can change people and it's, it's an X factor. You don't know how they're going to change until that situation hits. If they change one way, yeah. then you're able to work together. And if they change the other way or if they don't change, then you know, your, your paths are forked. You're going in separate directions at that point. Yeah, totally. That's a good way to put it. You had mentioned, uh, the, the sensors, Elliot. Proximity sensors. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So tech is, I think a huge component of prepping and it's also a huge contributor to some of the problems that we have today. And I don't think that's a radical thing to say or anything like that. But when we, we start talking about things like prepping, and tech that relies on large global supply chains how you know if we're thinking more long term what do you you know do you think focusing on things like tech is really important in the long term i i break down okay so i spent a year living in a triangle by myself and now i think in really weird ways and one of the things that i do is i break everything down in triangles and because I'm like, instead of having a dichotomy where you have like one side versus the other side and then something in the middle, I'm really interested in how all three sides of this thing connect with each other. And so one of the things that I use in, when I talk about prepping is that the immediate, the short term and the long term, they actually all tie into each other. The, the immediate and the, the long term even tie into each other in terms of like, okay, take a, a specific need, um, water, right? the immediate prepping solution for water depending is going to be different where, depending where you are. It might be a five gallon jug of water. It might be some water barrels. It could be as simple as like water purification tablets or even some goddamn bleach and a note on the bleach bottle that 
tells you the exact proportions, which I do not have off the top of my head because I don't fuck with bleach's water purification. I use water purification tablets or a water filter. Couple um, but yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like, but if you get it wrong, it's like it's it's no good. And if you get it wrong in either direction, you either have giardia or you get rid of COVID, according to Trump. <laughs> yeah. God, I wish he had tried that on himself. Maybe he did. Maybe that's why he went to the hospital. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, okay, so that's your immediate short-term solution. And that is not a long-term solution, right? Like a ceramic water filter is only good for so long. If you let it freeze, it breaks. You're only going to have so much of this chemical. Are you really going to have access to the industrial means by which to produce more of the chemical? And then you have the, okay, so then you have like the short-term. The short-term is the like, um, you know, things might want, like in, in immediate gets you over the little hiccups, right? Like that, you know, my, my pantry full of food gets me over the hiccup of the store. I can't go to it um, for a week. And then you have the like short-term, like how do I handle a water system on this, like maybe smallish scale for me and the people around me uh, and the sort of like village level. I also take these to mean like um, individual small scale, like community, and then like social, like large scale, um, you know, so then we need to have a village size water system. We need to have a way to get water out of the creek or out of the rain or out of the ground and provide for ourselves. Um, and then you have long-term and long-term is like grids not coming back. And in some ways it's like, well, how do we make the grid come back? Because there's certain things that we want the grid for, I believe, uh, social level infrastructure, um, is incredibly useful. It's just designed incredibly badly. Very poor. Um, because, yeah, yeah, because like, okay, my my solar powers, my solar panels, I can't make more solar panels. Uh, I mean, there are ways that I could slowly make really inefficient solar panels uh, based on heat. I forget the name of it the effect where one side of something's cold and one side of something's hot and it generates electricity, you know, it's like, but it'd be really inefficient. But even then I can't store electricity very well at all. Certainly not in a renewable way. The batteries, everyone's like, Oh, solar off grid. Like, no, these batteries, I have like a giant lithium battery. That's a leftover from an infrastructure project. Like um, it's, you know, it dropped to 80% capacity. So they replaced it. And so I bought it for a couple hundred bucks and it, I love it. But it's only going to last me the next, if I'm lucky, 10 years. If I'm unlucky, which I seem to be with batteries, it's going to last me like five because if it gets cold, it loses capacity. A grid uh, reduces the need for storage of power because then power gets generated where it's available and sent to where it is needed. And I think that that's true of different systems. And so when I think of technology, I, I'm less concerned specifically around like, um, you know, will my... Uh, can I rely on my solar panels or can I rely on my uh, motion sensor lights or whatever on, in the long term? Because no, in the long term, I cannot, you know? And so, and something I do is, and this is super hoardy and I only do it because I live off grid and my landmates don't love this about me is every time we break a water, like a water pump or a, a water heater, I, I keep it because sometimes I might need to take one apart to fix the other. There's nothing wrong with, there's nothing wrong with being thrifty. Don't ever feel bad about it. <laughs> Thanks. I eventually got shelves, so they're not just like stuff. Anyway, um, <laughs> so I know that's a long-winded answer to the question, but I, I really like to think about things in terms of um, meeting uh, all three sides of that triangle or thinking about all three sides of that triangle, even if you can't meet all of them. Yeah, I think it's a, a nuanced conversation. And, um, it, you know, tech 
again, you brought up this idea of like that there is some good for having larger systems uh, that they, they serve a certain need within a large scale community. And I think, um, especially as anarchists, that sometimes gets lost in conversation, uh, that there are some benefits to some larger scale systems. So I, I do think that's really important to talk about, uh, that you know, having a de- decentralized small scale systems doesn't mean that there isn't an infrastructure in place for other things to continue the, the relationships and uh, abilities for the collective good, um, whether that's you know, mm-hmm. in, in terms of today speaking, regionally, even nationally or globally, that, you know, that that's a part of the conversation. So if you don't mind me asking, I'm kind of curious what drove you to move into a triangle in the woods. I've always kind of assumed I would end up like in some like off grid thing that I would build myself ever since I was like first like a, a wandering anarchist going to demonstrations. And, you know, I was like a squatter for a really long time. And then I lived in a van and I've always had an appeal. It's always appealed to me to like live free or whatever. And, and I, you know, I didn't really picture a version of the world where I could like afford to buy a really nice house somewhere and like live free by having just pure financial access or whatever. And, uh, and so then I, I, um, you know, I kind of shopped around different land projects for a long time. Uh, It's, it's really hard to find one that you're a good fit for, especially if you're kind of weird which I'm totally not very normal, but if you were kind of weird, it would maybe be a little bit harder. (laughs) And, you know, and eventually I moved into this land project and I, and I lived in a common space for a while while I um, uh, took the time and the money to, uh, to build a little cabin. And, you know, I didn't really anticipate it to be my everything. I really built my life around having access to the community space and then also town. I'm not like a, you know, it's like, I'm not like a backwoods person. Like I'm not trying to um, hunt, you know, I'm not trying to like farm really. I, I really don't want to meet my own food needs just to be frank. And I make electronic music and I like work on a computer uh, and then COVID hit. And I was like, well, my bedroom, cause I, I treated this cabin like a bedroom. It's 12 by 12. I never really anticipated. And I, I had to rebuild it all uh, in order to meet my needs. And so I put in a stove and a sink and a shower and um, a battery system and, and all of that all in the past year and, and change. And now I don't know what my brain will do. I don't know whether I will happily reintegrate with society or if I'm just a fucking weird ass hermit now. I have no idea. It doesn't sound out. like you set out to be a recluse. It sounds like you just wanted your own, you know, uh, solitude and, and privacy. There's nothing wrong with that. That's what um, a lot of people strive for. That's what I'd call the pursuit of happiness. <laughs> yeah, totally. I think that's really cool that you were able to find a land project that allowed you to do that. And it still keeps you connected to a community that you care about and that you can be a part of, mm-hmm. which is super important. And I use yeah. the word normal very frequently when I talk about people. And I <laughs> just now when you said, when you referred to yourself <laughs> as normal, I, I think back to all the people that I've met and I can think of, on on one hand, I can think of how many times I've met a normal person like in real life. So normal isn't very normal now that I think about it. I don't think I've ever really consciously thought about that, though. <laughs> yeah, I think that's true. That's something I think now in my 30s, mid 30s, looking back, I was like, oh, how the hell did I end up right where I am now instead of doing something like that? Right. Uh, it's funny how life just kind of does that to you. So 
You know, in terms of this whole conversation about prepping, I think it's, you know, we've talked about the idea of like collapse and politics and Left, climate. right, center. Yeah. We've gone all over the place. We've talked about a bunch of these different components that I think play into it. Is there something you think that doesn't get talked about enough when we start talking about prepping? Okay, so like the, the two things that I think of, one is that like absolutely get rid of the idea of the bunker and also, okay, so like I'll split this into two parts. One, fuck the bunker mentality and two, fuck the rugged frontiersmen. And when I talk about the bunker, it seems like reasonably self-evident. It's the like literally build a bunker, fill it with all your stuff. Anything goes wrong, you go hole up there either by yourself with your with your family and then you're, you're taken care of. And now this is like, it's even for your own self-interest, a really bad plan. One, we're like social animals and even me as a, a deep introvert, you know? And two, like, okay, what are you going to do when you're like hold up with 10, 10 of your friends in a cabin in the woods, ride out the apocalypse and then your appendix bursts and whoops, you forgot none of you are a surgeon. Or maybe one of you is a surgeon and it's you and your appendix burst or whatever, right? Like, like we build our societies to be complex and have fail safes in order to stay safe. Um, and then the other reason, fuck this bunker mentality, fuck the go hide, hide to ride out the apocalypse by yourself with your 10 friends is that like, if your big thing is that you're worried that society will like uh, reform in a fascistic way or some way that uh, is opposed to your values, then why the fuck did you stay out of the argument? Like about what we should do instead. <laughs> right. Like, like it, it behooves us to go if we can, if it is safe to do so to whatever degree and nothing's safe on some way, especially in certain crises to go where the people are and to collectively determine what to do. Um, I believe that in, in, in moments where there's a power vacuum, it's not that an individual steps in, it's that an idea can step in. And usually that idea, that it's attached to an individual and some sort of strong man. Uh, but it also, and I've, I've done this in small scale, you go to some like social event where like the people who organize it aren't there. And there's like 20 people like sitting around being like, what the fuck do we do? Right. It's going to go that way until someone's like, here's what we're doing. And if you have an experience, if you are an experienced uh, anti-capitalist, anti-hierarchical organizer or whatever, you can step into that space and say, here's what we do. Here are the means by which we determine collectively what we're going to do. And so you are stepping in and saying, this is what we're going to do, but only to provide the structure about what we can do. And I believe that is like what we need to fucking do in times of crisis. Um, and I believe it works. And uh, I don't have a lot of faith in it, but it needs to be done. And it, and it's, it's, it's contradictory, right? Because those of us who hate telling people what to do are nervous to step up, but we need to think of ourselves as stepping up as facilitators rather than as like, uh, administrators. Um, okay. Then the other thing is fuck the rugged frontiersmen. Like, and this is more about like survival kind of stuff. Like people talk about like, a, like most crises don't relate to, I have a hatchet and there's a squirrel and I'm going to hit the squirrel with the hatchet until it's dead enough for me to eat it. You know, um, it, there are crises where that could happen, right? Like you have to leave and then your car breaks down and you and your friends have to make your way on foot or you're a partisan in a, you know, let's pretend like it's a foreign fascist invasion or something, right? Like, I don't know. Um, Canada. Are we going to Canada? Nazi. That's what I was literally <laughs> just going to say. We're going yeah, to Canada. Like, yeah. Like, like, Oh, actually, I was thinking Canada's invaded us. And we need to get to Mexico, but but or if we need to get into Canada, right? Um, you know, there there are ways by which we might need to uh, live off the land or um, 
or practice those things. And I, I don't want to, to, to put those kinds of skills down, um, but they're exaggerated. But even more than that, the frontiersman attitude is the like, it's what got us here in the first place is like, um, you know, I'm, I'm a settler in, in the US, I'm white. And this idea of like, we can conquer this untamed wilderness. And I would read about these like frontiersmen where what they would do is they'd go and civilize an area and then it would get too civilized. So they'd leave and go somewhere else. And I'm like, well, just don't fucking civilize it then. Like, <laughs> why did you do that? You know, you're like, I love trees. That's why I cut them all down. And I'm like, look, when you live somewhere, you might need to cut down some trees sometime. But like coming in and just being like, I am going to conquer nature uh, is a terrible. I mean, it'll work for short term survival. Right. Uh, sometimes. But it's a shit plan. And it's a shit plan to advocate that everyone go and do like, um, you know, I, I say this all the time, but I don't even remember where I got this uh from but uh apparently during the great depression like squirrel and deer were almost hunted to extinction in the united states um, that makes sense yeah yeah and and i'm not saying when you're hungry I, I mean go fucking kill something and eat it that's that's a very human thing to do i'm not trying to put anyone down for that but it's like that that can't be our whole plan our whole system is this rugged frontiersman like we're off to go conquer everything um so yeah, I, I guess, okay, so there's that. And then the other thing that people don't talk enough about prepping, I'm gonna give you another triangle. Uh, I think of the three sides of prepping as um, gear, skills, and relationships. And and it's totally okay if you mostly focus on one more than the other. The problem with traditional prepping is it's almost all gear followed by skills and not at all about relationships. And um, I don't wanna, claim that one of those things is better than the other because people should lean into their strengths, but, uh, relationships are real under-focused on, um, you know, even just like knowing which of your neighbors you can sort of trust, you know, ahead of time, more important than like, I have an extra sack of beans, you know? Um, and then some people will focus on, you know, and then there's other people who will be like, Oh, if you get that gear and you don't know how to use it, then you're a fucking like poser and you're a, you know, if you're a gun person, then you're a FUD. And then like, um, you know, how dare you go and get medical supplies you don't know how to use? And I'm like, look, I'm squeamish as shit. Like I have studied enough first aid to like not die and like first respond if no one else can, but I will never specialize in medical stuff um, because it, I disassociate in order to learn because I'm intensely squeamish. And also I'm busy and I kind of want to spend my time like making electronic music, which doesn't have fuck all to do with survival, you know? Um, but you know, like, but while I'm stockpiling a bunch of bullshit, I'm going to stockpile some fucking medical supplies and someone, I hope someone around me knows how to use them. Right. Um, because yet yeah, you need all three, all three of those parts of your triangle. Yeah. And I think you're right that the relationship piece is probably the least considered and I think I'll agree with that too. Yeah. As a whole, we are not very good at building community outside of our very insular left community. So like you said, we, we brought up this idea of like, how do you work with your community in times of crisis? Uh, and I think that points to doing the legwork and trying to build that network, even if it is just, Hey, this guy is nice to me. That's next door. You know, like personally, one of the things I do is I have chickens and they lay and ducks and turkeys and they lay way more eggs than we could ever eat so i just 
give them to the neighbors. And that, for a lot of my neighbors, that's almost the only time I ever talk to them. But mm-hmm. at the very least, if a crisis came, they would know to come to me if they needed food. And it might not yeah. be a lot, but a dozen eggs is still a 1,200 calories or 1,000 calories or whatever yeah. it is. And right. that, that might be 1,000 more calories than they have. And that that's it's not a lot, but it's it's that first step. And I think we have to be better about that. Right. And I think that relationship component of the, the triangle that you were talking about, how you approach prepping, is super important because um, it's the exact opposite of the bunker mentality where you're holding up and relying on just yourself, an individual or whatever your small group is, um, to take care of every problem that you're going to foresee in that dire situation. Whereas relationship building allows you to focus on what you're good at and then all of the parts where you fall short, if you have a good relationship, hopefully somebody can fill in and supplement. Totally. Where, like, like you know, if you're not great at doing first aid and medical, but you have a relationship with somebody who is, that totally helps you out. Yeah, so so why not garner that relationship and take some time it's a and, game. and build yeah. it? Because it's just it's basically adding to your gear. It's tools that you can use for your toolbox for when things get, get crazy. Well, and the other thing is that I think people like don't realize that like, Property relations and interpersonal relations change dramatically during times of crisis. And so like a lot of people are like, well, I don't have any money to get gear and I suck at skills and I don't have any relationships. So I guess I should just die or whatever. And I'm like, look, like, like sometimes like gear, like it's like knowing where the warehouse is, you know, like, because we can go get stuff from it or like, and then the interpersonal relationships just change dramatically during times of crisis. You know, like one of the, the, the way I always talk about it is like, if you're waiting for the bus, no one will like, at, le- at least in some places, like no one will talk to each other while you're waiting for the bus because it's strangers. And then as soon as the bus is like five minutes late, everyone talks to each other and it's like, well, what the hell, where's the bus? You know? And then, Oh, how's your brother or whatever, you know? Um, and uh, yeah. And so it's like, so even if you don't prep, don't despair, because there's a lot of opportunity in crisis, um, you know, and, and you can get stuff, however, you know, like people and and and, then, and then also even like if you're a prepper and all you want to do is you're like, I don't like people and I just want to gather shit then or like like when you when you give your eggs to your neighbors, you know, that's like such a brilliant like, well, you know you have the eggs and they're like, I'm hungry and I need eggs and hey, do you have any more eggs? And then like, I don't know, you can build relationships that way. And it's like, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is that like, I don't hang out with anyone anymore. So, but I have a lot of stuff now. I mean, I don't have a lot of like expensive stuff, but I've been like gathering things. And so I'm like, well, I'll, I'll have friends because I have beans and rice. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I've made, I've made friends with beans and rice. You can do it. <laughs> yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> um, so, you know, I think all this kind of, you know, you brought it up earlier that there's a lot more of us than people think. So do you think that we are mounting any kind of challenge to the rights monopoly in these subject areas of prepping guns, um, you know, whatever you want to call it? If so, how how do we continue to grow it and get people to see it as a, a pragmatic response to what's going on as opposed to some extremist kind of mentality? I've had a lot of luck with like, you know, sometimes the label is going to work against you, right? Like certain people, you tell them you're an anarchist and they they think a lot of different things, right? 
but on the other hand, I've had like, there's been really good PR around anarchism, I think, in the past um, 10, 20 years, where, you know, it's less like the anarchist is here to, uh, I don't know, throw bombs or whatever. Molotov and, cocktails, dude. They love that shit. Yeah. And like, and now there's like a little bit more of like, okay, anarchists are like, I mean, I, whatever, I'm in within a bubble. So I only have the ways that people talk to me about it when people tell me about what they assume about me because I'm like publicly an anarchist, but like, but we're like known to throw down. We're known to like care about shit. We're known to like help out other causes and like, um, and that feels good. Right. And so on some level, I think there is some reclamation that can happen around like prepper or prepare preparedness or whatever. But a lot of times I, I find I really got to be like, this is about individual and community preparedness rather than like, yeah, I'm a prepper, you know? Um, and, and then the other thing is, I think that one of the ways that we're able to kind of take space is like, I get a lot of uh, email uh, from my show, including from people who are like, oh, I was kind of a centrist who was a prepper and was getting kind of pulled towards the right because the other people who care about burying gold and buying guns are right-wingers you know and like well uh i don't totally care about burying gold but let's talk about guns and um and maybe tell me about how you bury stuff that's cool too you know i'm actually creating a fictionalized person i'm actually more likely to bury gold than the average person who emails me um let me give you a piece of advice don't bury gold you uh, gotta bury spirits and good weed you can trade that shit later when the world's ending trust me people will want it oh that's a good point way more than gold yeah so yeah, if you can get no, some okay. cheap vodka, whatever, bury it, you know? Yeah. You got some bud that stays yeah. green, yeah, bury it. Coins. <laughs> all right, all right. That's it. Just have a treasure chest. Point. Listen, I, I I heard a white ring <laughs> yeah. I heard a right wing prepper talking about um huh. y- like, you know, if you don't have, you know, gold or precious metals, he was saying like spirits and dire situations will be better than money because when people are you know, freaking out and they haven't been able to sleep because they're stressed, like a bottle of vodka would be worth, you know, $600. Plus so, it's yeah. And he, he was kind of joking and kind of cynical about it. But at the same time, I was like, he kind of does have a point. Oh, yeah. No, I'm totally going to go bury. I mean, I don't usually keep hard alcohol because I don't drink hard alcohol. But I'm like, no, actually, yeah, that's a doesn't go bad. No, nah, keep it in the it's dark. It's good to go. Yeah. Keep it okay. in glass if you can. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah. I I think we could, I think we can make space for this. And I think that we're starting to, and like this whole, like, uh, for example, like the left, right bullshit fucking, or the dem- left and right isn't totally bullshit, but like Democrat and Republicans totally fucking bullshit. And those like culture war around like, Oh, guns is a right wing issue. I mean, like well, what a gift to the right wing. Let's just have them have, let's just, they could take that. Yeah. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Everyone who likes guns is now a Republican. Like, oh, that's that's not going to go. What badly. could go wrong? Right. Yeah. Like everyone who has a vested interest in self-defense or community defense or um, survival or, you know, there's so many reasons people are into owning guns. And then just to tell them all that they're right wing. No, it, it that's like. I hate that this fucking world is now turning me into like a gun person. I'm like writing editorials like in favor of gun rights. And I'm like, I don't even, I'm not like, man, I'm so glad that fucking Nazis are after me enough that I carry a gun. Like, that's not like a, like, right. Yeah. Right. Right. 
pointed at my femoral artery all the time, you know? Like, fuck that. God damn it. It's it's sad. It is sad. But it's a conversation that, I don't know, It, it it's going to keep coming up and it's going to keep coming up because on one side, they're totally necessary for you to defend yourself against people who are garbage and want to do you harm. And on the other side, how do you morally and ethically write effective legislation that actually prevents all the bad shit from happening and doesn't, yeah. you know... Yeah. screw screw over law-abiding people like citizens like or even that's that's like, that's the argument and yeah. and for them to for anybody to to focus it and say that's a right-wing issue it's just it, it's bewildering to me i don't know how to i don't know how to address it sometimes without yeah we don't have getting to all th- worked up yeah, we don't have to think about it and again i think this is kind of someplace the left falls short is that because this isn't the world and we may not say my right to own a gun is because of the Second Amendment, that is a component of the world we do live within and that's what the power structure demands. So we should be using our voice to you know, do the bare minimum in defending our rights. Uh, and that doesn't mean that we're agreeing with the system or um, wanting the system cont- to continue, but that is a really important component of, you know, having our advocacy heard. Right. But it is like, uh, it is this also this problem of like the people who want to uh, not the politicians, but the, the, the grassroots level people who want gun control should not be our enemies. Like it's easier if you're a right-wing person to be like, Oh, well, fuck those people. They want my access to power Mm -hmm. to go away. Whereas like what we're trying to say is we want our access to power equalization. We want our access to safety, but like, but yeah, I, I, I do think that we do need to have sympathy for, again, not the politicians, because I, I don't think that gun laws are um, applied in very nice ways in this country um, because laws are not applied in very nice ways in this country. And but I, I understand why someone's like, I don't want my kid to be advertised bulletproof backpacks all the time. You know, like that's just dark and it's, and no other country has to deal with it to the, not no other country, but no other like country that we compare ourselves on a regular basis um, has to deal with that on a, you know, so, so there needs to be a way to do it. Compassion. Um, there, and so I, I think it, I try to refocus it around um, basically questions of poverty and questions of not being able to trust police. Right. And I, I think the the whole gun argument is um, politicized so much because there isn't a right answer. Um, that's why it's a bipartisan argument is because it's something that can be argued that there is no definitive right or wrong answer. It's all going to be based on your opinion and your life experience. Um, so that's one thing that I feel is used to keep people distracted um, from actually finding a solution that works for everybody and does make everybody feel safe without taking away anybody's ability to do whatever the hell it is they need to do with their Second Amendment. It, it, it's there. There's no yeah, it's it's hard to to really nail it down. I yeah, think I we're, mean, we're going to continue to talk about it for yeah. I I don't know how long but. forever until I mean the the problem and this is kind of pointless to say, but the problem is um, trying to find ethical con- uh, gun rights under an unethical economic system. You're you're never gonna 
you're trying to find a corner in a circle Mm -hmm. like it doesn't exist right and you're just going to keep going around and around looking for that corner but it's just it's not there i and it's frustrating mentally mentally chasing my tail yeah yeah i want to ask i guess my last question for you is do you have any hope in all this (laughs) i do um i i'm both I mean, I'm a really cynical person, but I like, I really believe in like a cynical optimism. Uh, I've referred to it sometimes as strategic optimism, which is this idea that like, like, I don't know, let's, you're playing chess. I'm not very good at chess, but let's just go with it. And, and you think you're losing and you're probably not going to win. You're really not going to win if you give up. You you just aren't, you know, Um, you have to fight to win in order to win. And learning how to fight to win even when you're pretty sure you're going to lose it's like a it's an art form and i i think it's kind of the anarchists like uh burden in some ways is like we want something more radical than most people and also we do not believe that we can force other people to share our vision we do not believe that we can force people to live in the society that we want to live in um, the, all we could ever do is force people to let us live in the society we want to live in. Um, and usually we're not very successful at trying to force people to let us live that way, but we could try. And and it can happen. It, it absolutely can happen. And not only have we come close within like a, a, a leftist anarchist tradition uh, numerous times, but like people have lived in anarchic ways across the world, probably more time than they've lived in, in non-anarchic ways i don't know whatever that gets into fucking that gets into some arguments i don't necessarily want to like die on the hill of but it's <laughs> like we we certainly can be uh successful in in numerous ways um we can stop some elements of climate change but i think that optimism has to look a little bit different like like one of the things i do uh for my own anxiety problems cognitive behavioral therapy and one of the the things about it is not about like and cognitive behavioral therapy is great for someone who's like arm got cut off. Right. Um, and my arm has not been cut off for anyone who's, uh, but you know, it's like, it's not coming back, you know, like the, okay. The trauma, uh, I'll stick to my own thing instead of using someone else's disability. Like the traumas that I've experienced will never go away. Right. And this myth of like healing is, is wrong. And when you focus on this idea that I'm going to be healed, you're focusing on the wrong thing. What you need to do is learn how to adapt to your new situation and not just like accept shitty things because they can't be changed, but it's like climate change is coming, right? Is here and it will continue to accelerate no matter what we do. So we need to learn to adapt to that. Um, and we need to adapt, learn to adapt our like strategic analyses to that. But within that context, there is hope. Like cognitive behavioral therapy does allow people to become better, right? Like I am not racked by anxiety, even though it didn't undo the things that caused my anxiety. Um, and so I, I, I have a lot of hope. Uh, I think that one, there's actually a hope that like a huge chunk of the population is like, oh, this is some fucking bullshit. And is like not trying to take that anymore. And like, last summer i mean it's like yeah okay last summer went sort of the way that like a lot of everything always goes where you know it died down and then people started infighting and then whatever but like it still was like i never thought i'd see something like that in the united states you know and like watching like that poll that was like 
the average U.S. person thinks it was totally fine for that police station to get burned to the ground. I never thought I would live in that moment. Um, and so most of the hope that I have, the best hope that I have is not about like, oh, anarchism falls into the fucking bunker mentality sometimes. An anarchism sometimes falls into this like, me and my friends will go be anarchists or whatever, right? Yeah, it's a kind and of it's like after, Yeah. Yeah. And after the collapse, we'll have the space to do it, right? And I'm like, no, but we could also fucking come together and stop this. And like stop this, whatever is like it, it looks different for different people. So I I, I have a lot of hope. Um, I just it's a cynical hope. There is hope. There. I, I like and that I, term, <laughs> right? And uh, you you bring up a good point where um, the whole idea of anarchism isn't really asking for permission to do things, and the approach now is you know finally once everything happens we'll be allowed or they'll let us you know pick up the pieces and that's just counter to. The whole ideal in the first place in my opinion <laughs> that's such a good point i like that is there anything you want to plug before uh we wrap this up yeah what do you got going on uh okay let's see so i have a, a podcast called live like the world is dying which is your podcast for what feels like the end times and uh i'm very excited because that's becoming more of a collective project um i might stay on as the only host but i might soon have a co-host and then i also have like audio engineers and transcribers and stuff and we're all making decisions collectively and it is it makes it the whole thing so much more doable. I also have uh, several bands. Uh, most notoriously is a all women black metal band called Feminaz Ghoul, which should have a new single out and a new split out by the time you hear this. And the split is with a band called A Winden. I also have a, a dark electronic project called Nomadic War Machine. I have a neo folk and anti fascist neo folk and noise project called Ulcerith. I just started an electro pop band called the lathe with somebody who's an amazing songwriter if you like like dancey beep boop stuff that's still really doom and gloom and i have a solo black metal band called vulgarite although that might who knows i'm never gonna do anything with that I, but i put out a lot of albums last year and i write fiction um <laughs> sorry i goddamn projects no I'll plug it all i'm interested because i'm definitely gonna go and check it out Cool. I wrote an anarchist utopian book that AK Press is re-releasing at the end of this year called A Country of Ghosts. That is my like best exploration of like people always like, well, what do you believe? And I'm mostly like, well, I believe that this is bad and we should be free. But if you really want to, you know, hear what I think anarchist society should be like. Um, and then I have a couple novellas that are out from tour um, that are like basically like anarchist Scooby-Doo, um, like demon hunters like a wow. queer weird demon hunter there's crew. a very niche market for uh, that first... and that market is me <laughs> <laughs> um the first one is called the lamb will slaughter the lion the sequel is called the barrel will send what it may and yeah i'm on twitter at magpie killjoy instagram at murder killjoy and you can support me on patreon which also supports the other people who do the podcast with me um yeah that's probably about it uh that's amazing. It sounds like you stay busy <laughs> yeah, right. in your cabin. Um, you yeah. need to get those proximity lights and sensors set up immediately. So if anybody comes and fucks with you. Because um, now you, they've heard you, can, that you don't you, have them. So You, you, you can start undigging your uh, weed and booze and let them know to leave you alone. You have weed and booze. Yeah. <laughs> I'm telling point. you, it's going to work. Oh, no, I'm... I'm I'm very excited about this new plan about, I mean, I would never bury anything illegal. So I certainly will not interact with anything until it becomes legal in the state in which I reside. There you but go. Alcohol. Um, but uh, 
Yeah, and I actually had all these questions I want to ask you all, but I think you all are the hosts of the show, so you probably um, already get to talk about what you want to talk about. But oh, no, no, go ahead. Don't totally ask us questions. We're ready. We're here for it. Oh well, now I don't remember exactly what they are. Well, like, what are you all doing? What do your preparations look like? Like, like what are you, what are you worried about? You want to go? Do, do I want to go? I'm I'm worried about. Um, it has nothing to do with climate change or anything like that. I'm worried about. Um, the kind of collapse, I guess it's social collapse, when people realize the government doesn't care about them and they weren't ready to come to that realization. What happens in you know the three days, three weeks following the turmoil, having to live in suburbia, what that means. Um, I don't think I'm going to be able to go anywhere. Um, I'm probably going to stay out of major cities because... I feel like I'd be better off. I, I don't know. I, I'm trying to avoid saying I'm the bunker mentality, but the situations that I'm <laughs> the situations that I'm prepared yeah. for, I'm ready to ride out with me and my my family and the people that I care about until we can figure out either a where to go or b how we're going to uh, fight back. Y- yeah. Well, I I I guess m- my prepping is more immediate. I don't think I've really gone too much into the short term and definitely haven't gone into the long term because it seems too permanent and it kind of freaks me out. So I I tend to focus on the immediate and the short term. So kind of like three days, three weeks mentality. And then after that, I haven't really started doing any long term preparations, but that's something I would like to get into as I um, sort of start my homesteading projects around the house. So, So hopefully I'll be able to tackle that. Uh, and have an idea of what I'm doing for the long term. How about you? Me? I am hopelessly long-term focused, um, despite any good that could come from that. Um, I just, I can't not think about 50 years from now, 100 years from now, outside of my lifespan. And for me, as a some, I'm a farmer, I think about, the fact that there's basically no way for our food systems to exist the way we do them now as globalism kind of crumbles in terms of it being pragma- uh, practical to ship grains and things like that. So like I spend a lot of time breeding chickens so that they're resi- like the, um, the most hardy and resilient that can live off the land. The same thing with sheep and a focus on uh, like fruit and nut trees and things like that um, with the idea of how do we build communities again? And that's really what it comes down to for me is trying to figure out how to build communities and cross those, those thresholds that I think are really challenging to do today because of the, the world we live in. Yeah. So, yeah, my, my collapse is, I don't know. I always picture myself wearing a crown of garbage on, on top of the cinder, <laughs> Um, just screaming out, I told you so, to nobody in particular. Um, that That's just how I see, you know, the end times. Mm-hmm. It's it's happy for me and just horrible for everybody else. So yeah. hopefully so. I'm not alone. Hopefully as we have more conversations like this, we can get other uh, leftist preppers, our preppers who have the same mindset so that I'm not alone at the end. That would make me feel so much better um, just because... I, we are creatures of, you know, we have tribes and communities that we like to build that we need to survive. So we're going to go ahead and need to survive until we can start to rebuild them. Yeah. Yeah. So 
Thank you so much. This was a great conversation. This was so much fun, Margaret. Thank you for your time. As always, if you enjoy the episode, please give us a review on iTunes, which heavily impacts our outreach to new listeners and helps us bring on new and exciting guests. We appreciate your support, and we hope you enjoyed this conversation. This is Elliot. This is Andy. With the Poor Proles Almanac.